This is ARRL's Eclectic Tech, a bi-weekly look at the technical and scientific side of amateur radio with your host Steve Ford, WB8IMY. Eclectic Tech is brought to you by ICOM. ICOM, for the love of ham radio, is about the passion for an incredible hobby. Visit ICOM in the community webpage at www.icomamerica.com forward slash community. We're only just now seeing 5G cellular technology rolling out in major cities and spreading into the surrounding communities and just barely into the rural areas. And smartphone manufacturers, including Apple, are bringing 5G devices to market right now. In case you're unfamiliar, fifth-generation or 5G networking involves sending wireless data at high speeds using signal frequencies ranging from UHF to microwave. Once the network is fully established in a few years, it promises to create a truly wireless world for everything from TVs to smartphones to medical devices and a lot more. 5G uses antennas on cell towers, just like you see today. The device transmits to the cell tower, and the tower connects to the Internet, often using a fiber optic line. This system is supposed to supply high-speed data to everyone, but there is a problem. Higher-speed data requires greater RF bandwidth, as we hams know very well. There are modulation and coding tricks you can use to squeeze every last bit into a limited bandwidth. Pactor 4 does this impressively on the HF bands, but pretty soon you reach a point where you simply need more bandwidth. Now there's lots of bandwidth in the microwave spectrum, tons of it, but I'll bet many of you have guessed the next problem. Coverage. Microwave signals don't like obstacles such as buildings and trees. Even rain and fog can play hell with microwave signals. So imagine a cell tower set up to send and receive data signals at, say, 30 gigahertz. What sort of coverage do you think it'll enjoy? If your answer is not much, you're right. Maybe spotty or erratic might be a better description. So what to do about this? A team at a telecom company called Radial is exploring what they're calling 6G, 6th generation, borrowing from a concept that's familiar to many in the ham community, mesh networking. Amateurs have been exploring mesh networking for several years. In a nutshell, it involves hacking the software used by consumer-grade wireless routers, the same ones you may already have in your home. They load new software into these devices and turn them into high-speed microwave amateur radio data transceivers. They also use amateur frequencies so they can legally boost their output from milliwatts to watts. The mesh network also does a very clever thing. It turns the routers into devices that automatically relay data by communicating with other routers. Each router in the network knows which router it can use to pass data. If one router goes offline, another router in the network picks up the slack automatically. This means that a single router can become a node in a vast microwave network, exchanging high-speed data over a large area. HAMS have already set up mesh networks in several areas of the country. In fact, a couple of months ago, a remote camera in a mesh network in Washington State spotted the beginnings of a forest fire and reported it to the authorities. Now, Radial isn't the first company to suggest that 6G might shift to a mesh-like infrastructure to compensate for the microwave coverage gaps, but the company provides a clear sense of how the evolution might happen. A central hub would still connect to base station radios, but the base stations would also be connected to each other, 
potentially using millimeter wave connections rather than fiber. Instead of relying on a single base station for data, devices such as smartphones could connect to two or more base stations at once, a multi-connectivity system that would create what they are calling microcells. Picture all of the home and business Wi-Fi routers in a neighborhood, collectively offering wireless connections to whoever comes by, and you pretty much get the idea. If you think this sounds like an amateur radio mesh network, you're right. There are many potential advantages to the microcell system, but Radial sees two that are particularly compelling. Lower costs and greater power efficiency. Compared to the massive antenna arrays that are currently being used to enable 5G connectivity, the microcell system would use multiple small distributed antennas, really tiny things, to duplicate the coverage of a large antenna. Over time, the result would be a cell-free network where devices benefit from whatever relays happen to be in range, rather than requiring proximity to a big cell tower. From a component standpoint, Radial says that moving to the microcell system would enable cell networks to use commonly available building blocks, including the same small and affordable transmit-receive modules that are already used in smartphones. But the network would also need an aggregation connector to link and coordinate network activities, and whether that link will be partially wireless or fully wired remains to be seen. Like others in the 6G research space, Radiol expects that terahertz spectrum will play a role in the next standard. Yes, I said terahertz. I have a feeling we're going to be looking at a decade before anyone begins serious deployment of a 6G network. For now, I'm just waiting for 5G coverage in my town. I'm speaking with Joe Karsha, NJ1Q. He's the station manager of W1AW. That's the Hiram Percy Maxim Memorial Station at ARRL headquarters in Newington, Connecticut. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, Steve. Now, you're in that cute little brick building across the parking lot from headquarters, right? Uh, yes, yes, I am. It is such a cute little building here. And anybody seeing it wouldn't realize, uh, because it was, after all, built in, uh, what was it, 1936? They began construction, yes, uh, just after the destruction of the original radio station, which is located about five miles north of here. But that was in late 1936, uh, 1937. And anybody looking at that wouldn't realize what modern technology is in there, right? Correct. I think if you're just driving down the road and you didn't know what it was, you'd think, oh, it's just another radio station, but you're correct. They would not understand what might be here, what technology that we currently have in place at W1AW. For listeners who aren't familiar with what W1AW does, what do you do, Joe? Well, we are, as you know, the official station for ARL, for the headquarters. We're the Max Memorial Station, and our primary mission is the transmission of code practice and bulletins using Morse code, various digital modes, specifically RTTY, PSK31, and MFSK16, as well as uh, phone bulletins. We transmit these on a schedule on nine bands from 160 all the way up to two meters, so we're essentially on nine bands simultaneously. And we do that on a daily basis. Now, before the pandemic got going, I know that uh, guests could also come and operate. Is that no longer the case for a while? Unfortunately, yes. And I have to tell you, Steve, I miss having visitors here. 
I know some people might find that odd to hear, but I truly miss having visitors here because normally staff are not allowed to get on the air for a variety of reasons. So the only time WNW may generally be active during the week is when we have visitors. Because of COVID-19 and the restrictions, we have had to uh, pretty much stop all public access to both ARL and WNW, and of course that includes visitors. So, yes, we have not had visitor operations from here since early March. You have, what, three studios? Is that correct? I have three studios, correct, that Visiting Hands can come in and operate. And I actually have a fourth. I do have one near the front of the building that I have a lot of my digital stuff. By that, I mean D-Star, Echo Link, and so forth. And the plan is to have that as the digital audio digital stations, specifically PSK31, RGTY, and of course the JT modes, which a lot of my visitors at the time when they were here were running just FT8 and so forth. But generally I have three studios where visiting hands come in and operate, and there are at least two HF operating positions in each one. Oh, and some VHF too, is there not? Correct. I have VHF capabilities I have satellite, so we can run 2 meters, 70 centimeters. I actually have 1296 on my satellite array. But again, that's also just regular VHF. It doesn't necessarily have to be satellite. And I actually have received capabilities for 2.4 gigahertz, and that's kind of a holdover from AO40. That's right. AMSAT Oscar 40. I wonder if we'll ever get something like that again. I would love that because that was such an awesome satellite when it was functional. I, my claim to fame on that one is working in Japan in the middle of the day because AO40 was, as you recall, was just so high up that it pretty much looked at, what, almost half the planet. So I was able to catch Japan on satellite at the near the end of my path, two or three degrees above the horizon. So it was pretty awesome. Now, does it go without saying that when guests are operating, you can't do your bulletin functions? Correct. That's why we have a visitor operating schedule, and then it is normally from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m., and then 1 p.m. to 3.45 p.m. daily. In the mornings, we have a code practice. That's from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern Time. And then we begin our nightly schedule of code practices and bulletins beginning at 4 p.m. Eastern. And tell me about those bulletin transmitters. You said you're on several bands at once. Uh, with what sort of equipment? We are now using all amateur-grade equipment. Generally, it's ICOM radios as the exciters with a Yesu and uh, Kenwood thrown in there, as well as ACOM 2000A amplifiers and ICPW1 amplifiers. We had gone from Harris commercial broadcast grade equipment, which was brought in during the 1989 station renovation, over to amateur grade equipment. And quite frankly, compared to the Harris stuff from 1989, this equipment is actually better. It is better, it is more efficient in terms of their duty cycle, their spectral purity, their stability, even the transmit TR switch, the uh, the turnaround transmit and receive turnaround times. Now, considering that you're running these transceivers almost every day, what is the maintenance like? Is that a problem? 
Not too much. I feel because we are running into uh, high-gain antennas, monoband antennas that give me pretty much full-band coverage, especially like on 40 meters and 20 meters, the antennas themselves are these wonderful loads. So the amplifiers aren't really being pushed. I'm not running full 1500 watts in these things because the antennas have such high gain. So I'm generally running up to maybe a thousand watts. At 800 watts, these amplifiers are just kind of loafing around. As such, the exciters don't have to produce so much power. So they're kind of loafing around. So everything just runs smoothly. But I do have a regular maintenance schedule for these exciters. Once or twice a month, I will run frequency measuring tests to ensure that I'm on frequency. If there appears to be an issue, I will run a spectral purity test on them. I have all my antennas and towers checked by certified antenna contractors twice a year, and that has to be done as part of the maintenance schedule. But that doesn't mean I won't have a failure. So if I do have a failure, obviously equipment just pulled out and I may swap out another transmitter so I'm still on that particular band. But overall, because we have such a wonderful operating environment, both in the antenna, the load, as well as the physical environment, the, these transmitters are in their own cooled case, as it were. These things are just kind of running along and not having a problem whatsoever. I remember seeing the transceivers in their enclosure uh, with the glass doors, and they're in racks too, right? Correct. They're in Harris. Well, we <laughs> we call them Harris racks. It's just something that's kind of held over from the renovation. But these are regular commercial grade 19-inch broadcast racks. And all the equipment is just mounted in there accordingly. Now, it does look a little crowded because I have nine transmitters located into these seven racks. I have my uh, analyzer, my frequency counter. I have the amplifiers in there. I have everything kind of loaded in here up to and including the patch panel for all the antennas as well as the broadcast antennas and so forth. So it, it looks a little crowded, but yeah, everything is in there in the broadcast racks. So it looks kind of cool. Oh yeah, definitely. And I should preface, when I say broadcast, I mean that purely in a technical sense because we are technically broadcasting. These are one-way transmissions, but because of the nature of our transmissions and the content of our transmissions, we're not broadcasting. I, I know that sounds a little double speak, but in the eyes of the FCC, we are not broadcasting simply because of the content. But I, I usually slip and say, yes, it's broadcast equipment. Now, people that live in the Newington area, they're not hams, they've not heard of ARRL, but my experience has been that if you tell them where you work and you just say that place with all the antennas, they know exactly what you're talking about. Tell me about the antennas, Joe. What what have you got there? I have four towers, three 60-footers. Those are Roan SSV. They're self-supporting. And one Roan 65, which is actually 120 feet. And that is the bottom section of the broadcast tower. In fact, it, it actually rests down on a pier pin, and of course, it's guide at six points. And the antennas, there's a, there's a combination. It's mostly M-squared antennas, 
We still have a couple of Kush craft in there. We have a few isopoles we use for two meters, a couple of diamonds that we use for our D-Star and our other digital modes. Uh, well, D-Star, obviously. And I also have antennas from JK antennas, specifically the 40-meter antennas, which are wonderful antennas because they give me full band coverage on 40 meters without any tuners or anything of that nature. I also have wire antennas for 160 meters, 80 meters, and I also have a Tenodyne TD90, that's a folded dipole, that we use primarily for Mars use. Okay, and what about uh, above 50 megahertz? I have, for six meters, I have the 9KHW, which is the big one on six meters, and Kushcraft antennas for two meters, 70 centimeters, and again, I have the barbecue grill for receive for 2.4 gigahertz, and the satellite antennas are also uh, currently Kushcraft. However, next week or the week after, during the my maintenance schedule, I will be replacing the satellite antennas with the M-squared satellite setup. That's the 2-meter cross Yagi, the 70-centimeter cross Yagi, the 1296 Yagi with its new boom, and they're going to be attached to the Yaesu G5500 rotator series. Ah, okay. Now, what sort of feed lines are you using for all these antennas? Pretty much everything is fed with half-inch Andrews Hardline, the uh, Heliax. There are some instances where I might be running LMR 600. And for one or two smaller antennas, nothing that's very critical, I'm running LMR 400 up the tower. But those are more for our, our, our small systems, like, say, the, the, the DMR or a packet system. Anything where I know I'm going to be running power or I need low loss, like with the satellite system and the VHF and UHF, we're running half-inch hardline. Now, I worked at headquarters for 30 years, just retired not long ago, and in my memory, I don't recall if the towers there were ever hit by lightning. Am I wrong? Uh, yes. <laughs> Actually, it was June 2006. That is the one time where I know we were actually hit by lightning simply because it was one of these early summer storms, actually late spring, I'd say, because it was early June. And it was one of those thunderstorms that happened to crop up at the time here in New England. And it was just after four. And staff were waiting in the front of the headquarters underneath the overhang. It was raining and it was thundering. And the staff actually, it was my boss at the time, actually saw the 125th tower get hit by lightning and of course they heard it and we're fortunate enough that because of the grounding system i have all three legs grounded independently i have polyphases in the box we didn't sustain any damage inside the building in fact we were transmitting at the time it was after four o'clock so that is one time I know definitely we've been hit by lightning and i'm sure there have been other times we've been hit by lightning that lightning strike did, I would say, more physical damage than anything else. After the storm, we went outside and I inspected it. And on one of the posts that's 
supports the fence around the tower, the concrete was kind of blown out. There was chunks of it around the tower leg. The moss around the tower looked as if someone had kind of scraped it up and popped it off. And there was a capacitor in the rotator that had this large black mark in it, even though the rotator was still functional. But it was it was kind of flaky, so we knew there was an issue with it. But that was the only damage. So we're assuming that the lightning strike, again, it, it was weak, just probably traveled on the outside of the tower, jumped to that post, and discharged into the ground with nothing coming into the building at all. That's remarkable. Well, you know, headquarters and WNAW are right smack in the middle of a residential area, too. And do you ever receive complaints from the neighbors, you know, all that RF power in the area getting into their electronics? Well, first off, thank goodness for cable and for um, fiber optic. The last complaint I got was a number of years ago, and it was a woman across the street, a widow, and she was so nice about it, but we pretty much just wiped out her television at four o'clock when we started transmitting. And I went over there and I checked the connection on the house, checked the ground. I made common mode choke filters for her television, her VCR at the time. This tells you how long ago this was. And we still just kept wiping her out. And I, I, I was at a loss. It's just, I've done everything that we recommend people do if there's interference. So I actually brought over Ed Hare, uh, doing RFI, the lab dad, and now my boss. And so we're looking at the TV. I had someone over here. I had them transmit. Of course, we see our TV get wiped out. And he sees something. And he's looking at the TV. And I wasn't paying any attention to it. I wasn't looking for it. But he noticed noise rolling up on the screen. And he said, there's a break in the system. I said, well, it's not in the house because I went through this house. She was very good about it. She let me do whatever I needed to do. She was very accommodating. And long story short, we found out that the problem was actually on the pole. Where her cable connection came into the house, she was attached to a preamp on the pole. The connection was not only loose, but it had failed, and it was green. So, of course, every time we transmitted, we were transmitting right into a diode, which was feeding her television. We finally got the cable company out here after what seemed forever, because it was this blame game. Oh, it's her issue, it's her issue. They replaced the connection, and lo and behold interference was gone. But it took Ed seeing that noise on the television for us to figure out that it wasn't inside the house. Clearly, it wasn't us because no one else had a problem. It was a broken connection on the telephone pole. But other than that, I've only had the occasional, um, we're coming through your speakers. So what we will do is I will usually grab one of the lab guys. And if I have to do this, I'll go over and I'll put ferrites on the speaker leads and on the wall warts that they use that and that cures the problem but knock on wood i haven't had any reports of interference at all for a number of years that's great joe well i'm hopeful that uh 
once the pandemic gets by us, and I hope it's soon, that you'll be able to have guests up there and I'll be able to come up there again. I, I really hope so. It, I've had regulars that have been calling and emailing saying, when is the station open? And, and it breaks my heart to tell them, well, unfortunately, we're still closed. And we have to take these steps to ensure that the organization still the, the staff here is safe, but also that we're following the guidelines so we can continue to be open. Because if we don't follow the guidelines, then we'll have to close down until this passes. So for any of the regulars who may be listening to this podcast, you know, please stand by. Please QRX. I hope the station will be open. It probably will not be open until maybe sometime early next year. We, we just got to get past this whole situation with COVID-19. But yes, I'm, I'm hoping once it passes, I can open the doors and my visitors will flood back in and put the station on the air. In the meantime, we'll just have to listen to your bulletins. Oh, yes, please do that. That and the qualifying runs. That would be truly awesome if you can listen to those as well. <laughs> well, thank you for your time, Joe. You're most welcome, and thank you, and thank you very much to the listeners for hearing a little bit about W1AW. Tune in again for the next episode of Eclectic Tech, produced by ARRL, the National Association for Amateur Radio. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. If you have comments, email eclectic at arrl.org. This episode is copyright ARRL, and all rights are reserved. I'm Sabrina Jackson, KC1JMW. See you next time.